I am not merciful or blessed. I'm just me. I got a job to do, and I do it. When the first living thing existed, I was there, waiting. When the last living thing dies, my job will be finished. I'll put the chairs on the tables, turn out the lights, and lock the universe behind me as I embrace the void. void quite calming actually it's like this time the xanax took me your sense of self is crumbling and it's taking the void down with it it's like i'm in a black void trying to reach the news story this concept of morality is a very interesting human characteristic what is real how do you define real if you're talking about what you can feel what you can smell you can taste and see. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 123 of Embrace the Void, where we are starting off the new year voidy. Uh, This is a conversation I've been dying to have with someone who I've respected for as long as I've known the meaning of the word. I'll give a content warning. We're going to talk bluntly about death a lot, Um, but hopefully in a good way. All right, let's get busy dying. My guest this week is Brenda Goodman, uh, someone near and very dear to my heart, one of my moms, and the person who taught me better than anyone how to really genuinely communicate with other people. She has a background in uh, mediation and a master's in gerontology and a lifelong interest in aging and dying and has recently been certified as a death doula. Brenda, would you like to say hi to the void? Hi, Void. This is the land of Embrace Death. (laughs) I'm so excited to finally have you on about this. I feel like since the show started, I wanted to have a conversation with you about aging and dying because pretty much since I've been alive, it's been something that was uh, very important to you and that you were always trying to engage with more um, in the world. Do you maybe want to start by giving folks an understanding of like how you became interested in aging and death? Well, it seems like I was um, interested from the very beginning as as a young child. I'm told I would crawl into the laps of elders who seemed to be in distress or whatever, and that just kind of seems to have been a North Star for me um, for a long time. I've been a family caregiver for about 30 years, starting with my grandparents and um, involved six family members. Um, And I realized that in the course of doing that, I had the practical aspects of caregiving pretty well nailed down, handling finances, getting medical stuff squared away, and um, just doing the practical things to help, help people live. But the qualitative part, um, the spiritual part, I, I just didn't have time for those. And so that, that, that void, if you will, um, was very clear to me for a long time, but I didn't really have words for it. And then I started reading about death doulas, and it just all plugged in together. Yeah, how did you come to the death doula stuff? Where did you find it? I just started seeing it actually in articles because I've always, um, as my husband will tell you, um, been drawn to information that I would see about death and dying. And it didn't matter what form. It could be burials. It could be, um, you know, distress in families, conversations, what was happening on a policy level. Um, So... I've been drawn to those, and over in the recent past, in about the last five years, I'd been seeing the term death doula or end-of-life doula. Um, Started realizing I was familiar with birth doula, um, and so I started understanding what that role was and that it was way beyond just managing resources or making sure that someone had a will in place and those kinds of practical things. Yeah, that makes sense. And I want to talk to you some about death doulas, obviously. Um, and I was just curious. So so the way you're describing your approach to this is that 
a lot of this came from a, a personal um, interest place for you. Uh, I'm curious if you also feel like there is a, you know, you often also come to things from a sense of cultural justice or significance or things like that. Do you feel like there's a particular felt need right now for addressing these kinds of issues on a societal level? I think it's both a felt need in terms of of the soul of the world, I guess, if you'll say that, um, as well as a very pragmatically practical policy reality. And what I mean by that is that um, societally, we deny death. And so with the, if, you're, if you're denying it, if you're fighting it, if it represents fear, um, you're already taking the quality of that experience, which, believe it or not, we're all going to have. Um, you're just taking that into uh, a very negative, um, just a, for me, really an awful place. And there's no... Mm-hmm positivity about the way most of us and certainly our culture um, makes us ashamed and feel guilty about, you know, what we didn't do, all of the things that are around the fact that we don't talk about death, that it's uh, verboten. And then when you when you pair that, that fear that has driven our policies that say, well, our policies and our perspectives. The perspective is, if you've got a terminal illness, you fight, fight, fight. You are fighting the good fight. Everything's about a fight because what we know is we want more. <laughs> and we do not focus on what that more is going to look like. So if, if someone comes in and says, the doctor says, well, you know, we can try this treatment. It may give you another two months. Generally, people will say, I want it. Do it. I don't care what it, whether it hurts. I don't care anything about it. More has got to be better. Those kinds of things have driven us to a situation where the majority of Medicare funds are spent in the uh, last year of life. Mm. Now, that's the quality of those last years is pretty horrendous. Um, so while, no, I'm not advocating death panels, um, <laughs> but I am very much advocating discussions that talk about where we want that to be, where is a healthy place for that to be. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, where do you do you have any sense? Do you feel like of where the energy behind that sort of grasping is coming from? Do you feel like is there something in our culture that is particularly reinforcing it? Do you feel like it's just as people have more technology that makes it a possibility, they are are sort of it's a, it's a natural urge to to fight death in that way. I think t- it's technology to the extent that that contributes to the pacing that uh, that prompts us as a society to um, want everything to happen quickly so and, and not interrupt our lives any more than it can. So we're already conditioned to trade off quality um, in that perspective. So I think we... Um, we want to do the fastest. So if we're, if someone passes, we want, you know, there'll be a funeral next week and it'll take this amount of time and somebody can fly in. So whether you're talking about the logist, logistics of burial or the logistics of um, care at end of life, we want to both not take responsibility for it. Yeah, do all, do all, do all. That way I don't have to feel um, concerned about, uh, I don't have to feel guilty. If mm-hmm. I haven't done the right thing for my uh, for my person, mm-hmm. um, so that's part of it. The a, a big, huge, hairy part of it is um, corporate structures and reinforcing that their profits over um, over what the quality might be for the individual. One small example of that would be the kind of crazy testing that goes on for people near end of life that regardless of the results, nothing is ever going to be done with because the person is dying. Mm-hmm. But because they've got to, got to justify the fact that they just bought this ridiculously expensive piece of equipment, they're going to use it. And so mm-hmm. the protocols in the health system start to get set up to do all those completely unnecessary, invasive, and uh, very anti-quality processes. Yeah, I think that's important to highlight that it 
that we're all making decisions about something that's very challenging within a framework where there are a lot of pressures that shouldn't be there, it seems like, that are, are uh, perverse kinds of incentives in a variety of sorts of ways. So, so with that framework in mind, let's talk some about um, what it is to be a death doula and how we might try to help people who are dealing with these kinds of situations. The term itself is clearly very evocative. Um, sort of the comparison between the transition into and out of life is, is pretty apparent there. Um, can you expand some on what the role of a death doula is in someone's end of life? Yeah, it's it's a very broad continuum. So... Um, when I made the comparison to a birth doula, that's a little clearer because it's a it's a finite period of time, and uh, death doula's work is not always a finite period of time in terms of the known the known time um, frame. Um, so you do associate it with the very end of life piece where you're sitting vigil with the person. Um, one of the pieces of the training I took was no one dies alone. So with that being um, kind of an overarching very end of life, the transition stage, that's clearly a place where um, doulas come in and they are um, they help to hold the space for the family, so they help to manage grief, whether it's the uh, grief difficulty of the individual who is at end of life or the people surrounding them expressing the distress that they have in ways that are not very positive. So that, I think, is the piece that most people would naturally say, okay, I understand birth, birth doula. So, okay, that's a similar thing to what someone does at end of life. Absolutely true. What people don't, uh, aren't as familiar with, I think, um, would be the afterlife, uh, if you will. And what I mean by that are helping families think about and individuals think about what, how they want their body handled, not just interment or cremation or whatever, although that's part of it, but also what matters to you about what happens after um, you're no longer here. Um, the front end of that is where we really need to start and where I have a lot of energy, and that's around um, supporting conversations and um, planning on death, um, on one's own death, so that people, so that it doesn't become uh, a topic we're not talking about, it becomes a topic that we honor and that isn't frightening. And I think those conversations need to happen with children, with people at any age, really, to try to destigmatize and normalize um, what death is in, in our lives. Yeah, definitely. So we'll, let's dive down into both of those parts of being a death doula. So we're going to spend a good bit of time doing some of the activities that you have worked on and going through some of the the questions in our part two. Let's talk a little bit, though, about the the first thing you said there, the thing people that often think of, which is the, like, sitting Shiva <laughs> vigil kind of part of things. Because I think this is a, a perhaps a universal kind of fear that we all do have of, you know, when we die, we, we die alone. Um, as someone who doesn't have children and isn't planning on having children, I realize that that increases the likelihood that I could end up, you know, sort of alone and forgotten somewhere at the end of my life. And I imagine that there are other millennials out there who who wrestle with that and who try to adopt a kind of ironic approach to not caring about it or something like that. But um, I'm curious what your your thoughts are about that feeling of wanting there to be someone when you pass. And do you feel like it's something that society should make sure everyone has, that it's a sort of significant enough good in that kind of way? I, I absolutely do. Um, and, and I'll expand on that. But I will also say that there are people who are so private that they really want when it's abs when it's actually that time of transition, and most people do know that at some level, um, they they wait until they're by themselves, and so that's a corollary and one that's hard to understand. If you know the person well, you might know. And I've actually stepped out of the room um, when the person was dying, when I thought that would happen. So I was, but I was there up until um, a natural point of passing. 
and that person did pass as soon as I stepped out. So having said that, though, I think that most people want that comfort. And for me, that's often, uh, you know, touch, just holding someone's hand, um, depending on what I know about them. It's, um, it's reassuring them in ways that, um, that I know matter to them. So it certainly depends on um, what their physical needs are and abilities and, and cognitive as to how interactive you can be. But there is nothing more amazing than just holding someone's hand and and believing that that is is comforting because it certainly comes back the other way in in uh, in a very big way for me. Mm-hmm. So, what kind of training does your did this process this um, uh, certification that you went through? What kind of training does it give you for things like holding space like that? Do you all have exercises that are involved in? Because I mean, that's clearly a very confronting thing to deal with. Um, do they help prepare for that in some way? Yeah. So. Um- there are lots of different programs, and many of them are based um, in the medical world, so in nurses' associations and that type of thing. And that's great. People that have that background um, are, are incredible as doulas, but it's absolutely not necessary. A death doula is a non-medical role, and so even though um, in that role I would help families um, know, know what to expect in terms of physical or cognitive changes so that they're not distressed, so that they know how to interact and um, just to bring normal, normal normality to that um, situation. So, you know, that's one, one place where, where we focused on that. We, it kind of, oh, I'm sorry, the, 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 the group that I worked with was about sacred passage. And so it was certainly farther afield uh, from the um, medical, mm-hmm. in that it emphasized the uh, empathy connections and those things. Not that the other programs don't do that, but it was, I think it was just open more to that kind of thought and um, a little less with their with the feet planted in the medical world. We it broke into kind of two segments. The first was really about the group um, getting grounded personally, and so we did experiential things with listening skills and empathy skills, um, including being uh, doing role-playing or um, scenarios in which we were the person who was dying. Um, mm-hmm. So to the extent that you can capture that feeling, um, tr- understanding what a having a ritual happen around you, and those can happen while one is still alive or after physical death. Um, so we got kind of grounded in our own grief and identifying where in our lives we'd had grief or where we had distress or fears ourselves about dying and tried to kind of neutralize those or, or understand those, I, I guess is a better word, um, so that when we go into the work, we've done our own work. And mm-hmm. obviously that's an ongoing thing. And then the second part of the training, once we kind of gelled as a group and um, and had a little more personal grounding, is to, to work with tools. And um, I'll start with the planning tool that, that we're going to be talking about a little bit more about later. In this program, it's called The Best Three Months. And the, the framework of it is to... Um, Either either you use it with a person who has may have three months to live and they've been given that diagnosis, or you could use it with someone who's, you know, 25 and just have them say, if you learned that you had three months to live, how would you want to manage these particular things? So it engages the person in creating their own reality um, and the reason I feel strongly about that being really valuable at any age is when you understand dying about yourself, you understand living about yourself. And mm-hmm. so I don't, you know, I definitely do not see this work as beginning um, at a particular age or at a particular point in time when one has a, a critical illness or a, a terminal illness. So 
Yeah, and I, I'm, uh, we did a little bit of the discussion stuff uh, yesterday, and I'm looking forward to doing a little bit of it more on here. I think it is very good process work that the, the Stoics would certainly appreciate as an applied version of the kind of things I think they often have in mind when they think about trying to move your way towards a good death um, in some kind of way. And they talk a lot about... Um, assessing and addressing your fears of death, which you mentioned. I'm I'm curious if you could say a little bit more about if you found there were times or or, or, or if you had particular insights into your own sort of fear hangups around death or things that were sort of surprising to you when you dug into your own reactions. Um, I, I was really happy to find that I didn't have fears about my death um, in fact, during the training, <laughs> I actually said, can't wait, and <laughs> then realized that maybe that was a little a little strange. Um, so where my distress is, is around, um, you know, losing others. And so I explored the reasons for the people who I have lost, who have been very important to me, what that was about, and, you know, where there was just sadness and loss, and where there was... Um, shame or guilt or any of those kinds of things. And, um, you know, without getting real specific about it, I would just say that there was a depth of working through that information that was grounding for me. It wasn't shocking, um, but it was something that I had mostly just kind of, it had uh, caused uh, low-level distress in the background of my brain. And so processing it... um, in a, in a safe environment was, was a very helpful thing to do. And the part about, um, when I think about, you know, losing your dad, um, that is, is a place that is, um, different in terms of fear, but this training has helped me know, um, has really helped me think positively about my own, which it's one thing to, Um, be working with other people and helping them see how they, quote, should be, um, and another to actually internalize it in your own work. But it's given me a place to um, kind of like when you're meditating and you get to the bottom of the meditation and then there's that white space and then it sends you right back in the other direction. That's what it feels like to me. It's a kind of a touchstone of saying, this is okay. Um, Mm -hmm. We've planned this. We've talked about this. Interesting. I want to talk about the attachment to the other folks thing in a second, but let's stick for a second on your sort of what you want for yourself. It sounds like you you felt like you had some clarity on how you are approaching your own death in a little bit. What does that mean for you in concrete kinds of terms? Were there things that came up that you realized were very important for you that you want to have as part of this process? Yeah, I think the most interesting thing for me was um, I don't think of myself as a teacher. I haven't had that um, role in my professional career specifically. I've been a facilitator, um, but that's that's holding space. That's not, in my mind, that's not an educator. Um, and what I realized is how important creating things, and, and part of that would be educating um, particularly people in my family who might be more... Um, in close proximity to me at end of life, um, teaching them how I felt about dying and how I, the positive things I felt that doesn't, um, you know, take away the attachment things, but it, it makes, it made it uh, a rich, a, a rich and grounding way for me to think of it because it, it, it really did put me in a different place that wasn't words. It was uh, a real, heartfelt sense. So, okay, so let's talk about this taboo then. Uh, And like, to me, it does come up, especially when thinking about other people. You know, there is something in our society that's profoundly taboo about diving into, you know, asking you a point blank, what do you want when you die kind of questions, it feels like. Um, And I think part of that is attached to a a genuine struggle with the, the emotional side of these things that like, you know, I'm, I'm quite certain that 
when the time comes and you pass or Jess passes, I'm not going to be at all remotely ready for it. Um, I will be a, a giant mess. I guess I'm curious, do you do you still experience, first of all, that taboo reaction in yourself as you're working through these kind of things? Is there a part of you that says, you know, oh, I don't actually want to dive too far into this conversation, um, even if it might get somewhere productive? Yeah, that certainly kicks in. Um, but as I continue to do work, both individually and with people, um, the more I explore it, the, just the less frightening it becomes. I mean, that's true for, for anything we do. So I, I don't, first of all, I think that the conversations that we are starting to have as a family will make a big difference in how you feel. Not because you aren't going to feel the loss, of course you will, but I'm I really, really believe that it changes that dynamic in a in a very important way because you experience the other person as having created their own reality about their death. And that's important. Um, when you know that, that that person has had a sense of completion and honor about how their life is going to end and how they're going to be remembered, then things that, that might pop up for you of I should have or, you know, why didn't this happen or whatever, those get ameliorated. And I think that is, it's not something you can really know until you've started to experience those changes. So for me, the, the, the work that I've done so far brings me back to a touchstone of this is okay. And attachment, I think when we're talking about that that concept, um, part of where Western society anyway um, has really gotten off track is that the ego is what's driving us and not the soul. And so when we're with the ego, all of those other things are just pounding us about uh, whether we're the person who is at end of life or we're someone who cares about that person, um, we're just, you know, shaming and we're doing all kinds of things to ourselves, whether it's fearful of, oh, you know, because we're not supposed to die. Our ego says, gosh, everything will be terrible if we're not here. <laughs> and I'll miss that. Well, my perspective is I'm not going to miss it because I'm not going to know it. I don't, And I don't need to have that proven to me. That's my belief and that's my comfort. Yeah, I've been struggling with this recently, and it's related to some ethical concerns I have in the philosophy work that I'm doing, where these questions around attachment, you know, clearly we're a non-traditional family, and we were raised with a a non-traditional approach to questions of attachment. We sort of are in the church of, you know, um, accepting what is a lot of the time. And I do think that there is a lot of really important value to that. And I understand that a lot of times attachment can be tied to the ego. I think I've just been, I've been becoming more keenly aware of the trade-offs of all of the things I believe. And for that one in particular, the trade-off that I've been struggling with is that I think partly as the world starts to feel bleaker and bleaker, you know, how much is being accepted that that shouldn't be accepted or something like that. But in the case of personal relationships, like not wanting y'all to go doesn't seem egoic to me. I, I feel like there is a way that it could be done that is egoic, but I also, so like, I'm going to put this in a way that makes sense. Um, In ethics, right, there's this feeling that uh, there's a debate about how much you should sort of care about what happens external to you, things beyond your control in various kinds of ways. So when the Stoics talk about it, like there are ones that go so far as to say, you know, feel no concern if your child or loved ones end up dead or something like that. And they're trying to talk about, you know, the letting go of the ego side of things. But then some other folks, even some folks in like the care ethics side of ethics will come along and say, you know, any ethical system that requires you to be that kind of level of detached from your deep and meaningful relationships is making it so that you're not fully connecting to those relationships. Now, I hope, I do genuinely hope that there's a, a middle ground in there somewhere to have the right kind of attachment um, in the right kind of ways. But this is just this is just what I've been struggling with, this this squaring this kind of circle. And I'm curious. 
Um, if you if you are struggling at all with those kinds of ideas around attachment as well, is there a space? How do we make space for, you know, saying I want to be the kind of person who's completely ruined by the death of this person that I care about? Um, well, I guess the very first thing I would say is we have to be gentle with ourselves. So um, mm-hmm. as an ethicist and philosopher, um, you are often thrust into um, frameworks that are binary, and they very much say, well, this is it, and then you have to work within that framework. Um, those frameworks, I think, are all very beneficial, even if you don't agree with anything in it, um, to have observed it and considered it is is really valuable. I, I feel like... Um, you're not going to find that answer in a particular approach. For me, again, I'll come back to the word touchstone because that's what I feel like my path is and what I'm developing um, in my own awareness, which is to, first of all, to be gentle. So when I find myself feeling in a real distressed place, whether that's loss or grief or fear or sadness or whatever, um, having developed tools that will help me say, wait, is that right? You know, and so that a a bell goes off for me to do something with myself, not to keep on that trajectory of Mm -hmm. where I am with whatever emotion that is that's taking over, and also not trying to plug it back into a scenario that's binary, because that's, that's, to me, that's a trap. And that's not being gentle with yourself. It can be a wonderful process to go through, but that's not where I would intend would intend to to land. Is somewhere mm-hmm. that I could say, well, that's my philosophical approach to death or anything else. Yeah, I do agree that it, I, I feel torn between all sorts of kind of binaries and conflicts and like. I want to feel like those binaries can all be dissolved in some kind of way. And then at the same time, my, you know, another part of my head says, look, there is binaries here. You're either alive or you're dead, right? I either get to spend time with you or I don't. And that's, I guess, I guess what I'm saying is I worry, and we'll talk about this maybe a little bit more in terms of how sort of modern, um, uh, consumer mindfulness may be creeping into these discussions some, but I worry about, you know, people being told to not not feel as much because feeling is too egoic attachment and, and it just being hard to convey the message that, you know, it's okay to to be really, really upset about this and to need some time to process through that as long as you're getting the other side of the and you're processing through it kind of stuff. I guess maybe I I worry that 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 part, the allowing part, is is getting lost there a little bit in the beginning sometimes. Um, and I think that's um, exactly where communities like, like this one come into play as we um, help support each other in, um, in the empathy and, you know, always a balance trying to get that through and a lot of a lot of people that live in their heads connected um, in in this world. Um, I shouldn't say live in, but who are very intrigued by uh, by cognitive things. <laughs> um, but I think the more that we can support each other, that it's okay, and not try to bring air bin- well to to be thoughtful about how we bring binary um, frameworks into those discussions as we both struggle. Um, okay. You know, in a discussion with how do we get grounded, just to try to be a little more fluid about being able to prove rationally that something is or isn't right, does or doesn't exist, um, and and where the empathy part might be a bridge in there that is necessary, because grief is necessary, and it I I would not expect nor want to get to a point where when someone I cared about passed or you know, someone I was working with, even if I had only just met them, that um, I wouldn't be perfectly comfortable and not proud of, but honoring of the feelings that I have. They should happen. When you've loved someone, those, you know, that's, that's just what's supposed to happen. I don't think you want to, um, you don't want to short circuit that. 
Yeah, I definitely agree. So you hinted there a little bit about the range of ideological and, you know, um, viewpoints that people often bring to these questions around death, often from a religious or spiritual or what we might sometimes call a supernatural kind of way of things. I want to talk a little bit about that because we are a skeptics podcast sometimes, and um, I have a lot of concerns about the way that some folks approach death. And I'm curious, first of all, how did your program prepare you to engage with people's different religious and ideological approaches to death? And are there any approaches that you personally feel like you would struggle to support? Okay, so um, the way the the program uh, approached it is to, it's more from a macro level of acknowledging that, you know, you might come in contact with as as a client, um, and I, I use that word, I don't like it, but I can't figure out what other one you use, um, as a, cli- a client who has a very different belief structure, background, uh, orientation, whatever it might be that could be a trigger for you. So what what we did was more strategize of if you were working with a Muslim and that was not something you had any knowledge about, how would you gain that knowledge? How would you get it from them? How would you get it from their family? who might be important um, from a a hierarchical or a structural standpoint in that community that would help you understand that. So we did it, approached it more from that perspective, which was helpful because it's reassuring instead of thinking, oh my gosh, I've got to learn about all these different rituals and and what matters and I don't want to step on anybody's toes. Um, It was more developing a comfort with, well, I can ask, you know, I can just say, I'm delighted to be working with you. I don't really, I'm not familiar with X. Um, I think we could work together well, but can you help me understand about that? So that's the way we um, we manage that part. I'm sorry, I forgot the second part. Do you feel like there are some approaches that you would either personally or ethically sort of struggle to be okay with? Do you feel like there are things where that, that, don't, that don't feel like you could support them at least? Um. I really wondered about that as I was going through it. And again, because we took more of a macro problem solving approach to it, things that might be triggers for me in normal life, um, not in that in that scenario, um, don't trouble me because I feel like I know how to problem solve them. I'll give an example. Um, I was raised as a Christian, but saw many people... Um, kind of use Bibles as weapons. Um, and so I, the uh, certain types of Christianity, when Christianity is used as a weapon, I guess, is is a, a very difficult thing for me to deal with. However, most of the people that I have been with at end of life are Christians and um, different, different uh, levels of it and different approaches. But I've kind of learned to put my scramble phones on so that I can be where they need me to be and still be true to what I believe. So I don't have to endorse what they're saying in order to comfort them with things that I know they value. For instance, if they um, if they believe they're going to see their whole family when they pass, I'm not uncomfortable reinforcing that. I'm thoughtful about the way I say it. Um, and how I say it with their family members. But I feel comfortable that I can manage that. Um, and most of that is about developing your own comfort more than your own knowledge, I think. Do you feel like, in from what you've seen of this, these communities at this point, do you have concerns about... So, so something that you always raised me to be aware of was the... Uh, the degree to which elderly individuals can not only be sort of ignored or sort of blanked out in society, but also makes it easier to exploit them because people don't look at them or think about them a lot. Um, do you feel, are you worried that there is, that the mindfulness, the big mindfulness boom um, is coming to elder care and that there's going to be a sort of a whole other industry of people sort of taking advantage of the elderly in the in the guise of helping them in this kind of way? Absolutely. Um, when I think about how I would design death doulas, 
being rolled out into society, um, what the only one that makes sense to me really is the way the birth doula uh, movement took place, and that is um, within a community so that um, doulas are developing their own network to rely on, and it really gets incorporated into the environment in, in a community. However, there is absolutely no doubt that this is a profit-making um, area now, more so, birth doulas ha has not gotten to that point in a big way, and I don't really know why that's true, but I do think it's important that that we try to figure out how to have some balance with that so that um, medical systems um, aren't the drivers, so that just for-profit corporations who you know, may have, uh, may build prisons and also try to do death doula training. Um, you know, I, the, the hybridization is uh, beyond uh, what I want to think about. But anyway, I do think it's very important that it stays grounded in um, not in profit. Um, my choice at this point is to offer services not uh, at a cost because that's what I choose to do now. Uh, many people will need to make their uh, living from doing this. So, you know, that starts to become a how-do-you-do-that model thing. So there, there are things to struggle with about that. Yeah. Do you have any recommendations for folks who are interested in doing this kind of work on on ways to, to get into it that are both sort of financially functional and helpful to others? Um, that's really personal. Um, and what I mean by that is that um, the backgrounds of people that were uh, that I was in training with, um, someone, some are in situations, they're social workers, nurses, um, whatever, pastors, where they can naturally integrate this information into discussions and practices and systems that they're already part of. Um, and some some of the people actually had their training paid for by by systems. And they will do good work. So I don't mean to, again, in, in the binary uh, thinking, to say that, that there isn't a place for health systems to do to be part of this in a constructive way, because I definitely think that's true. I just don't think they should be drivers. Um, so those, those things give me hope that the system is starting, has the, has the uh, possibility of shifting its focus, just like the medical systems are realizing that many doctors and particularly surgeons um, are not particularly able to listen to their their uh, patients. Um, so, so some of those awarenesses of just you can't have good care if you're not doing certain things in a respectful and responsible way um, are, are part of that. The second piece is I would say that um, all of us who are trained um, I, I see us as ambassadors, even if we're not working with someone at, at a particular point in time, um, because we educate people. I, I talk to Uber drivers about death, when, you know, <laughs> whether they like it or not. Um, so it just kind of comes up in my conversations. And that's the way I see things changing, not in as in both a structured way and a very um, informal uh, conversational way. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So before we run out of time here, I wanted to talk a little bit, uh, some hypothetical abstract stuff, because when I teach death in my intro to ethics course, I, you know, try to get my students thinking about their intuitions about whether death is genuinely a good thing or a bad thing. And I think one of the one of the ways we can do that in a way that may, you know, become real at some point are questions about whether we should try to cure or prevent death itself, right? Not just um, reduce suffering, not just um, extend life, but in some way, you know, if we could stop aging, for example, you know, cap off your aging at 60 and you stay 60 for as long as you want to or something like that. Um, I think, you know, there are some some initial intuitions that would suggest that that would be a really beneficial thing to do for people's quality of life. I'm curious what your take would be on technology like that? Do you think that it it would be a good thing? Do you think it'd be something that could be good for some people and harmful for others? How do you how would you approach that? Um, I am not in that camp. I, I think that um, if we were to take the natural end of life process out of our culture, out of our world, 
it would be just like saying, okay, that tree is green now, but it's starting to get a little brown. We shouldn't have it. And the things that we see as things get brown are really important to us. I, I, I think of it, I really do think of the human body as, as potential fertilizer before it can actually become fertilizer. And I mean that in a very, uh, in a very broad sense, obviously, that, um, that that would be to me a very a very grave loss to um how to our empathy to our understanding of connecting with the natural world if we were to try to to cap things in a way that was convenient and pleasant and and attractive mm-hmm. i just think there's a lot of value in it one of the interesting things when people do advanced directives and i'll i'll use an example of someone with uh ALS because it you know it has a pretty known uh, outcome they will set a um, milestone of if this happens if I get to the point where I can no longer do X then I want this to be implemented and then they get to that point and they've adapted and they say okay well maybe when I get to Y that's that's when this will just not be okay and not everyone does that. Some people stay right with, with what they thought. But other people adapt. And so as long as we're not where I draw the line or see the need for more clarity and understanding is on what is quality to that individual, not what can be imposed on a group of people or a society or anything else in an objective way. I've I've seen the arguments that um, with uh, Rob Emanuel's brother had an art has an argument that he's an he's a physician. It's an argument that seventy five is the age at which mm-hmm. um, people just should no longer be looking for any kinds of proactive interventions, and that doesn't make sense to me because seventy five is very very different for different people. Um, his his analysis is that it's based on what you can contribute. And if you can no longer contribute, then you don't have value to society. I would reject that out of completely and totally. Yeah. So I think, so that makes sense. Um, so I guess part of me from the SSI side is just so like, would there be something wrong, for example, with if we could extend lives for another hundred years or something, if people could be 200 instead of 100, but then they age and die naturally, does that seem, would that seem like a good thing to you? Or would that seem like, you know, I guess I'm curious where we feel it becomes bad to, to extend. And like, you know, we, I think we generally agree that it's better that like people get to live to be, you know, 80 rather than 60, if, if there's a, a way for them to do that in a way that it also includes the quality of life. So, you know, if it's not just um, exchanging quantity for quality, is there something to be said for trying to increase the quantity of people's lives or trying to, um, you know, we, we, tweak, we tweak birth all the time now, right? We have all sorts of medical correctives for making birth easier, and we use a variety of medical correctives for making death easier. So I'm, I, I share your intuition that we, we have to be careful not to make it too artificial in some kind of way, but it's, I find it very hard to figure out where I want that line to be um, when, it, when, the, when there's genuine suffering on the other side of the line. That's why I think we have to follow natural, and we have to follow how how other people, how people, each individual experiences their own end of life journey. Um, because without a clear understanding of how we feel about death, you can't you can't just ask people whether they want more, and you can't um, you can't know how all the systems around you would be reacting to that an example would be some i know people who have lived to you know 95 or 100 and they're still in very good shape and they're uh, they're interactive they're involved in their community um but but they've lost all of their touchstone most of their touchstones around them in terms of relationships and their impact on the world and so they some many people get to a point where 
I'm done. I'm, I feel good. I don't, you know, I'm not depressed. That's not why I'm not interested. I'm just done and I'm, I'm ready to go. Um, so that person right now, anyway, if you offered them more time, they're not in distress and they say, no, I'm good. Um, so I think you have to bring that into the conversation as well, because if, if, as would probably happen, it was mostly people of means who were able to extend their life, at least initially, because whatever the elixir is, they're going to be the ones that can afford mm-hmm. to, to have it. Um, that's certainly not an imbalance we'd like to, to create. Absolutely. I do think one of the major concerns is that this technology would certainly um, fall disproportionately based on income, and that would reinforce a variety of, of inequality kinds of problems um, that are severe. So, okay, so as we're getting towards the end here, before we do our lightning round, I'm curious what kind of advice you would give for those of us beings unto death, as we all are. Are you? Do you feel like there are things that you think are, are, I mean, obviously, like you say, we have to um, focus on the particulars of different individuals' experiences, um, but are there sort of broad correctives that you feel like could be helpful to potentially large swaths of our listeners? Try again. I'm not sure exactly um, what uh, and what things that, that listeners could do individually. Yeah, well, like what would you recommend, um, you know, for listeners who are struggling with these kinds of questions that we've been talking about? Um, would you recommend that they seek out a death doula now? Would you recommend that they read certain materials or start just doing sort of broad um, research? What is um, what is a way for sort of people to sort of slowly change course potentially for themselves if they've gotten in the cultural habits of just avoiding these topics entirely? Well, there are a couple of things that are happening, a lot of things, but one is um, there are a number of organizations um, that are putting conversations about death out in the community. And one of them is just called The Conversation. And so it helps people know um, how to have that conversation in their family, in a group of people, in any situation. And, and that's just one, but it's it's one of the uh, more widely known. Often there's there are things called death cafes that are, are associated with that, which is, you know, usually takes place in a restaurant. And um, it's not about where people who are involved in end-of-life services are trying to sell their services or their wares. Um, it's just where people come to talk about it and... Um, And so those are two things that really kind of are, I think, a very real interactive way of getting involved and exposing yourself to it. You don't have to know anything about it. You don't have to have done research to show up there. You can just listen. Um, But I think looking up just the conversation online and seeing what that is about um, would kind of give you a background of having the discussions because I mean, I'm, I'm conversations is my uh, is my central point um, in terms of death doula per se. Again, I would I would start by looking at that in your community, just death doula in your city. Um, I think it would be interesting for each of you to find out what what is there. It might be surprising to you. Um, and lastly, in terms of engaging a death doula. Um, as I said, most people, this is a, a profession, um, and most people are going to charge for that. So um, I think that the planning is is valuable for a person at any age, as I said, because it does uh, very much ground you in how you want to live. Uh, but I also recognize that that may feel like uh, an expenditure that someone, you know, just couldn't manage at this point. Most people will do um, an introductory discussion just to um, kind of help you understand what they can offer. And that would, I think, would be of value as well. You mentioned costs there. Do you feel like this is a a service that should be covered under um, sort of general health insurance uh, systems if we lived in an ideal world? Or should it be a kind of sort of separate uh, voluntary service? Well, that's that's an interesting one because – Part of me can see it becoming a healthy part of a health system and and becoming part of what is covered if we ever get something like Medicare for All or Healthcare for All. Um, it certainly belongs there because um, it both pragmatically and empathically, it is 
appropriate in that it does save money if if you're the bean counter um, to to do things in a natural way instead of fighting against whatever system or situation you're in. I mean, that's just that's just true, regardless of what you're talking about. Um, if you're pushing against something, it's generally going to cost you more time, money or something. So yes, I do. But I also think it's important that um, to the extent possible, it remains grounded in personal relationships that are tied to communities. Uh-huh. So you'd have to try to figure out some sort of way to to fund that in a way that was that was functional and didn't turn it into sort of corporate uh, systems in some kind of way. Yeah. Uh, and I've seen groups of doulas develop their own ways of doing that, of compensating each other. So, for instance, if you're sitting vigil at end of life, well, you can't be there 24-7, you know, seven days a week. So you would bring in four or five doulas and you would manage that. Well, one person has a, a contract relationship with the patient. The others don't. And and some of them will say, well, this is kind of my pro bono, you know, and another person will say, well, you know, I need to have make make money on this. I need to be able to at least support getting to the place and coming home. So it's very, very personal in terms of where people are able to make trade-offs. That's that can be a lovely system and it's very community oriented, but it's not necessarily replicable, nor should it be, because it is particular to the individuals and they shape it. And I think there's value in that model as well. So I don't think there's one way to do it. Mm -hmm. Do you have any other thoughts for primary caregivers or folks who are the ones helping out with someone else who is going through an end of life situation or someone who's dealing with uh, a terminal diagnosis or something, um, what maybe maybe potentially resources that they may not be aware exist out there for them that could be um, helpful shared experiences of others and such. Yeah, we'll put together um, some resources mm -hmm. at the end that'll that'll be more extensive about mm -hmm. that. But um, I do I think that uh, my biggest lesson was um, to partner with the person. Um, who is at end of life or anticipates it or is just contemplating what that would be like um, so that they're creating. Um, I've said, I said it earlier and it's so, it really struck me so much that the value that people found in um, how they might contribute um, to the lack of fear and, and education of someone else, particularly a young person. So often when it came up, it would be, well, gosh, imagine if you asked your grandchild this and or shared this thing, this information about yourself with your grandchild, how they might feel differently about death. And people got very excited about that. Hmm. So, you know, they're, they're, the point is don't take care of them. Yes, there are places where you have to do things for them on their behalf, but keep them in the picture always and don't try to save them from things they don't need to be saved from and, in fact, benefit from being part of. I think that's a really great final thought to, to leave it with there. So let's transition then to our lightning round. So you're familiar with the show. You are familiar with how this works. But for folks who've not listened before, we end our shows with a lightning round where we ask the individual um, a list of things uh, and whether they think that those things are real or not. Um, they are given the freedom to say real or not real. And that's it. No hedging on that side of things. Um, now, we had a patron who suggested something that I think was really valuable here. Um, I've been sort of jokingly starting off the lightning rounds by asking if your readiness is real, which is not necessarily a particularly useful question to start with. So let me let me ask you broadly, first of all, um, do you think anything is real? Yes. Okay. So, something is real. So we're going to go through a list of things, and we're going to find out if any of these particular things are the things that are real. Are you ready? Yep. Okay. The external world? Yes. Colors? No. Phenomenal consciousness? Absolutely. <laughs> Free will? Uh, kind of. <laughs> it's fine. I won't be bad. Uh, selves? Uh, no. Genders? Mm, no. Races? Mm, no. Species? Yes. 
Morality. Yes. Rights. Mm, yes. <laughs> I think that hum is starting to get a little bit. It's like it's fine. <laughs> Knowledge. Uh, yes. Gods. No. <laughs> Society. No. Numbers. No. Fictional characters. No. Holes. No. Chairs. No. <laughs> Natural laws. Yes. Beauty. Yes. Causality. Yes. Dharmas. Yeah. And just for you, death. Oh, yeah. Super real, huh? Yeah. Okay. You survived. How do you feel? All right. Not so bad, right? Nope. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to do a part two on this and what we're going to, uh, we're going to work through some of the questions, the interview material that Brenda has prepared from her, um, uh, program and i'm going to uh, answer the questions so look forward to that next week and thank you all very much and thank you so much brenda for joining us uh really appreciate it and i look forward to chatting with you further death is fun <laughs> <laughs> so weird family <laughs>